Police at Michigan State say they have absolutely no idea about the motive behind a shooting that left three students dead and five others hurt. It's Wednesday, February 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Yale researchers say Russia has illegally deported thousands of Ukrainian children and sent them to camps inside Russia. There's a very large amount of material related to the patriotic education that these kids undergo while they're in camps. Also this hour, the danger forever chemicals pose to the hundreds of thousands of people in Massachusetts who rely on well water. You've lived here for 37 years and you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. And the latest Capitol Hill showdown over the debt ceiling. Bruins win, Celtics lose, clouds give way to sun today. It'll be in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The earthquake death toll in Syria and Turkey has now soared above 39,000 people. Turkey's president says most of the victims are in his country, making it Turkey's deadliest disaster. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul. Experts say as high as the death toll is, it's almost certain to rise further. More than 105,000 people were injured in the February 6th quake and the aftershocks that followed. Turkey's Disaster and Emergency Management Agency says some 195,000 people have been evacuated from the quake-hit provinces so far. Following the Syrian government's agreement to open new border crossings, a caravan of U.N. trucks entered from Turkey. They were loaded with blankets, carpets, mattresses, and other shelter materials. A World Food Program official says half the population in affected parts of Syria is facing hunger. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says she will step down after eight years in office. She says she'll remain on the job until her successor is named. Sturgeon came to power after voters rejected a referendum on Scottish independence. She has since been pushing for a fresh independence vote. Police continue to search for a motive in Monday night's mass shooting at Michigan State University. A gunman killed three students and critically injured five others. He took his own life after police confronted him. Mourners are remembering the victims. Several gathered at a church in Gross Point, Michigan, to honor them. Michigan police say the gunman had no known link to the university. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have blasted social media companies in a hearing. They're accusing tech giants of pushing harmful content to children. NPR's Derek Kerr reports lawmakers hope to pass legislation on the issue this year. Senators heard from a mother whose son died by suicide after being bullied and from Emma Lemke, who grew depressed after countless hours on social media. The constant quantification of my worth through likes, comments and followers heightened my anxiety and deepened my depression. Senator Richard Blumenthal says Limpke and others have been victims of what he calls big tech's hideous experiment and that it's now crucial to pass bipartisan legislation known as the Kids Online Safety Act. It's a public health emergency egregiously and knowingly exacerbated by big tech. The legislation would require tech companies to develop tools that shield kids from bullying, stalking, and exploitation online, and to build parental supervision tools. Derek Kerr, NPR News. A blizzard is slamming parts of North and South Dakota and Minnesota this morning. The National Weather Service says the central plains are getting two strong winter storms this week. There are parts of the south that may feel the effects of strong thunderstorms, including the possibility of tornadoes. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control proposal goes before the city council today. It would need approval from city councilors, state lawmakers, and the governor before becoming law. As WBMR's Walter Wuthman reports, it's likely to spark fierce debate. Wu's proposal would tie allowable rent increases to inflation, up to 10 percent per year. There's an exemption for smaller owner-occupied buildings and new construction. Some members of the city council argue the proposal doesn't go far enough in capping rent hikes. But many developers are against any form of rent control. Here's Greater Boston Real Estate Board CEO Greg Vassell. It's an impediment for investors to put up capital to come in and to build projects. An investor will think twice about making an investment in an area where there is government price controls and housing. The city estimates the policy would cover 55 percent of Boston's rental units. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 2022 was the second warmest year ever recorded for the water in the Gulf of Maine. And scientists say climate change is to blame. The Maine Research Institute says the average sea surface temperature was just over 53.5 degrees. That's nearly four degrees above average and just below the record that was set two years ago. Researchers say the warmer temperatures are harmful to the area's ecosystem and animals like whales and lobsters. Massachusetts's highest court is changing centuries of precedent. The Supreme Judicial Court says a man can no longer justify killing a woman because she told him she cheated on him. That had been an allowed legal defense. The court ruled this week that reasoning is misogynistic. It may only be February, but you can start making summer plans this morning, especially if those plans involve camping at one of the 27 campgrounds run by the Department of Conservation and Recreation. The reservation system opens this morning at 9. DCR Commissioner Doug Rice says you don't necessarily have to lock down your plans today. There are day of reservations available because campers are always changing their reservations or canceling their reservations. So folks can go on day of and search throughout all the different campgrounds and see what kind of availability there is for a site if they don't get in early. Rice expects 150,000 campers to visit state campgrounds between April and October. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. The Celtics lost to the Bucks in overtime last night. The final in Milwaukee was 131-125. to The Seas will host the Detroit Pistons tonight. The Bruins beat the Stars 3-2 in overtime last night in Dallas. The Bees will visit the Nashville Predators tomorrow. Northeastern won this year's women's college hockey beam pot. The Huskies beat BC last night 2-1. A cloudy start today, but becoming mostly sunny. The high will be in the mid-50s. Partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will only drop into the 40s. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a chance for rain in the afternoon and evening. It'll be in the lower 60s. Right now, it's 39 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Who exactly has been sending flying objects over the United States and what exactly is their purpose? 
We are not likely to answer those questions this morning, though we'll do the best we can. We do know the United States shot down one balloon that China admits to sending. As for other objects shot down in recent days, an actual news headline this week said, quote, White House rules out aliens. Not a headline I expected to see, but the United States has yet to say who is sending these objects. So, Senator Mike Rounds joins us next. He's on the Senate Intelligence Committee and Armed Services Committee, so he's been getting briefings. Senator, welcome back to the program. Well, good morning. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. What kind of information does the United States have about these things? Well, you basically just shared everything that we can talk about publicly. Um, we do know that uh, you know China has acknowledged that the balloon, uh, to begin with, that it's a communications balloon, or it's a it's a balloon designed to basically intercept and and to you know listen in on us, gather data. We're fairly certain about that. It's not a weather balloon, and uh, it's one that could be steered to some degree, but uh, basically floats on the wind currents in that in that high altitude area. Uh, designs you know to operate at about sixty thousand feet, which. Uh, basically, for the most part, is above most commercial operations or commercial flights. Right. Now, um, other than that, we we know that we have other uh, other objects, <clears throat> but we don't know where they're. You know, we don't know who the who the owners of those objects are. Do we know, or do you know, um, <clears throat> what the function was? To the extent that you can say publicly, did they appear to have any any capability of any kind? At at this point, we're really not talking about any other. Uh, data that's been collected on those other objects, um, and, and, and in part because anything that would be released right now would be basically best guesses. We haven't found the uh, the uh, the leftovers yet. We haven't found the debris yet. Right. Once we find the debris from where they've been shot down, and and they're they're actively looking for it at this time in all of those locations. But what they want to do is be able to look at it and then be able to figure out where it came from, who was operating it, and so forth. To the extent that you can say, do you believe the United States can effectively rewind the tape here, by which I mean go back through satellite imagery or radar readings from past days and trace an object back to its source? In some cases. Uh, honestly, look, here, here's the deal with the balloon. They're, they're very slow, and in many cases, the type of radars that we use are designed specifically, and they're 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 set up to catch uh, high speed items, hmm. items that or, or that are a little bit larger or that are at different altitudes. If you've got something which is really slow moving, uh, it might have been you know similar to a flock of birds or a, a large bird, uh, and a radar in many cases is designed to eliminate that type of background, hmm. so that you can specifically identify those items that are moving at a higher speed. You know things that we normally would consider. Uh, something that could be threatening to our national defense. And what they've been able to do is to go back into the radar data that they've got and to basically take out some of the filters and look at other items. And in doing so, they've been able to uh, identify these particular items that are up there that, that you know, that uh, are very small in many cases, and uh, they can look at them and if you were looking at them normally, you might have thought they were something that was natural. It might have been a very large bird or something like that. Hmm. And so you would have phased those out. So that's one of the reasons why we're now seeing these items, uh, you know, a whole lot of them in a very short period of time. We've simply enhanced the capability or 
taken out some of the filters that eliminate some of these items that are very slow moving. Oh, that raises another interesting question. Juliette Kayyem, an analyst, former security official, wrote in The Atlantic that these objects likely <clears throat> have been coming all the time. It could be that this, that this is a phenomenon that's years old, but now we're noticing more because we've dialed up surveillance. Do you think that's right? We can't rule that out. Um, at, at, this, at this stage, we can't rule that out. Uh, whether this is uh, information, whether it's benign in nature, whether it's simply you know, uh, semi-commercial operations that have been floating around for a while from someplace else in the world, we just simply don't know where, where they were coming from at this point. We really need to find the, uh, it, we need to find the debris, and then we can, we can basically you know, learn where they're coming from. In about 10 seconds, is this keeping you up at night? Not really. Um, I think it's really good that we're identifying the need to be able to enhance our radar. That might mean that we're going to need more capable radars uh, in the future. Clearly, we have to stay on that part of our game. South Dakota Republican Senator Mike Rounds, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. The Russian government is operating more than 40 child custody centers for Ukrainian children who have been deported to Russia. That's according to a report by Yale's Humanitarian Research Lab, which is a partner in a new State Department project to investigate potential war crimes. Russia's embassy in Washington says the children were forced to flee to safety because of the war. NPR's Deborah Amos reports on what the Yale researchers have found. Yale's Humanitarian Research Lab is deep underground. A carpeted bunker beneath a campus library, a security measure, says Nathaniel Raymond, who heads the lab. We face complex cyber threats on a daily basis. There's a core of 20 researchers. They scour satellite imagery, social media posts, news reports, looking for patterns and connections that otherwise might go unnoticed. This is your workspace? Yes. Hi, everybody. Raymond is matter-of-fact about the daily cyber threats from government actors, he says, who want to shut down or slow down the online research. Though we may be here at Yale, in reality, we are inside the Ukrainian cyberspace that's part of this war. And you feel that? You feel like you're on the front line? The sort of joke amongst the team here is that we go to work in Ukraine every day from New Haven. Their latest report documents a systematic Russian program for the re-education and adoption of Ukrainian children, one of the most explosive issues of the war. The team says they've verified at least 6,000 Ukrainian children in Russia, but believe there are many more. The age category range from infants and toddlers to 18-year-olds. One team member who can't be named to keep his research secure explains how they know. We have very high-resolution, commercially available satellite imagery. You can see indications of both the presence of people as well as certain types of activity. There's a very large amount of material related to the patriotic education that these kids undergo while they're in camps. The report verified at least 43 camps, where some older kids get weapons training. The youngest are adopted by Russian families. All of them get a daily dose of propaganda. What we are seeing is the government of Russia and Russian leaders training and indoctrinating a generation of Ukrainian children. The Yale report is the most extensive look at the program so far, says Raymond. It shows scale. It shows chain of command. It shows logistical complexity. And he adds, the research shows the program is government-backed. This is not one rogue camp. This is not one rogue mayor 
or governor. This is a ecosystem of holding facilities for children stretching from Siberia to the Black Sea. It's a potential war crime under international treaties to remove children during a conflict or change their nationality. Russian officials don't deny Ukrainian children are in Russia, but insist the camps are part of a humanitarian program for abandoned war-traumatized kids and have publicized the program for a Russian audience. Not a surprise, says Caitlin Howarth, the operations director at the lab. And I think that that is actually a really important tell about this entire story because you simply cannot move this many children through this many places and without their movements being noticed. In May last year, Russian President Vladimir Putin issued a decree that made it quick and easy to adopt Ukrainian children next to impossible before the war. In addition, the government provides support for Russian families who adopt, the biggest financial incentive for adopting handicapped kids. The first report on social media came just about the same time as Putin's adoption announcement, says the researcher. I believe the first places we saw this were on Telegram and maybe VK. And that's the Russian version of Facebook. Correct. And it quickly became clear that there was an enormous amount of information publicly available. For example, the group verified this online interview with a teenage boy from Ukraine. He says, I was told I'd be in this camp for two weeks, but it's been two months. Russian officials insist adoption is only permitted for Ukrainian orphans, although evidence shows some of the children have parents in Ukraine. A new law in Russia makes it harder for Ukrainian parents or close relatives to get their children back. The Yale report documents just 37 Ukrainian children returned to their families out of the thousands who are still in Russia and have not returned, says Raymond. It is fundamentally the unconsented custody and control of thousands of Ukrainian children. So besides the criminal aspect, there's a grave humanitarian emergency here, which is kids separated from their parents not only against the law, but against common decency. Investigating alleged war crimes is always difficult, but these open-source investigators have developed a trove of potential evidence. The Yale lab team are all young Internet sleuths who work to verify the data they dig up. It's like a cop shop, says Raymond, a cyber cop shop. The way to think about our role in this process is like the TV show Law & Order. We are the Jerry Orbach. <laughs> beat cop side. Our job is to collect the evidence, what is happening on the ground that's available in digital evidence, and then how that comports or does not with the law. For the first time, war crimes investigators can collect perishable evidence while war crimes are still occurring, says Raymond. It's the future of war crimes investigations happening now. Deborah Amos, NPR News, New Haven, Connecticut. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, lessons from the Obama era on how to navigate the current debt ceiling crisis. It's 719. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilsden at ART. 
A Body New Comedy by Zadie Smith, adapted from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, starts February 25th, amrep.org. The government has gone after the maker of Fortnite, saying it's been illegally profiting off young players, and that is going to cost the company big money. I think it's a big enough fine that it's going to send shockwaves across the gaming industry and cause other platforms to clean up their practices. How government lawsuits are letting the video game industry know. It's on Watch, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Later this morning at 11, Governor Maura Healy stops by Radio Boston for her first chat with Tiziana Deering since taking office. She'll be talking about the T, the end of pandemic-era assistance programs, and more. That's today on Radio Boston at 11, here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Cloudy skies gradually clear this morning, and by this afternoon, it should be mostly sunny. It might be pretty windy, too. The high will be near 57. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 48. Tomorrow, clouds may give way to showers in the late afternoon. We'll have a high near 62. Right now, it's 39 degrees and Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. The Treasury Department has been taking extraordinary measures to avoid a default on U.S. debt. But that's just a temporary solution. At some point, Congress and the White House will have to act together to raise the debt ceiling. And many of the same people who have been negotiating on this issue on and off since 2011, when the U.S. came so close to default that Standard & Poor's downgraded the nation's credit rating. Among them... Joe Biden, who was then vice president. We spoke with former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew about what lessons were learned from previous debt ceiling crises. He helped navigate a few of them during the Obama administration. In 2011, he was director of the Office of Management and Budget. There were nights when we were negotiating literally through the night, you know, at at multiple levels. I was with the vice president then and Senator McConnell on calls. We were in and out of the Oval Office. And there were nights when you would check the Asian markets in the middle of the night to make sure the world didn't think that was the day we were going over the line. And this was not at a random time. It was right as we were emerging from the great financial crisis. For those who don't remember what happened in 2011, how did it ultimately get resolved? Well, it ultimately got resolved uh, in a combination of lowering the caps on discretionary spending uh, and putting in place a special uh, committee that was supposed to report uh, back on deficit reduction. And in the event that that special committee failed, you know, deep across the board cuts in a process called sequestration. 
And it was not a, a, a good uh, process. Um, it was only the best alternative at the moment to default. Mm. So it sounds like in 2011, there were concessions ultimately that Democrats made, right? And in, in the sense after 2011 was that Democrats can't do this in the future? Is, is that what you're saying? Well, you know, not to go back to ancient history, I've been involved, I was involved in showdowns over the debt limit in the 1980s when I was uh-huh. working for the Speaker of the House, in the 1990s when I was at OMB in the Clinton administration, and then again in 2011 and 13 in the Obama administration. What changed over time was there was always a negotiation with a must-pass bill until 2011 when all of a sudden default was an acceptable outcome to those making demands. That's not a negotiation. That's a kind of policy extortion. So let's talk about what happened then a couple years later in 2013. In 2013, President Obama, I was a treasury at the time, myself and the economic team made the judgment we could not do that again. It's one thing to negotiate over fiscal policy, and that is totally appropriate, but not with the demand of, if I don't get what I'm looking for, we will default. That had to be put to rest. And it got resolved in 2013 and beyond. This is really the first major showdown since then. So you mentioned in 2013 it ultimately got resolved. But then my recollection is it kind of bubbled up again, I mean, in 2015. Like, it didn't feel like it was fully resolved. What what happened in 2013 and beyond was... Congress, you know, Senator McConnell in particular, found a way to structure it so that the president could make the hard decision about what the debt limit should be. And the president could bear all the political burden, as it were, of making the decision. And that's fine. What isn't fine is looking at a deadline where if you don't capitulate, you default. If you fail to pay any of your bills, you're in default. And I can tell you, as somebody who managed the kind of machinery behind planning on what happens if, there's no clean way to do that. It's not as if it's a modern computer program where you can put an algorithm in that says pay this, but don't pay that. You know, so if you can't pay all the bills out of a system, you can't pay any of them. So what did you take away from the situation, both, let's say, in 2011, but also in 2013, then when you were Treasury Secretary, about the best way to deal with this? The best way to deal with it would be to to have the debt limit not be a kind of catastrophic deadline. You know, it's hard to say eliminate the debt limit. That's an argument we heard, I recall, last fall. But eliminate really means is deal with it in a way where you don't have to vote on it. Um, The Constitution says only Congress can determine how much we borrow. Congress can say we could borrow as much as the president says we need to borrow. And I I think, you know, it would have been a good thing if after 2013-15 there had been serious um, discussion about how to move on so you didn't have these moments where the the security of the United States was on the line. And, And looking at how this is going to play out over the coming months, the world is just emerging from the you know, COVID economic crisis. We've seen moments of stress in treasury markets. It's more than just an economic issue. It, it's really a national security issue. And I think the economics of it are terrible. You're going to see higher interest rates if we default. It's going to put a burden on regular working people. It's going to be a real, real problem. 
So now we hear the president say, the White House say, there will be no negotiations over this issue. Help me understand ultimately what that means. I mean, is the best case scenario that some moderate Republicans will join forces with Democrats? And it's sort of like that's the only solution I keep hearing. And I'm wondering if there is an alternative. I think, you know, what I've heard the White House say is several things. First, we won't negotiate over the debt limit, but let's sit down and talk about fiscal policy as we have to. You know, the Congress needs to set limits on appropriations. There can be conversations about other kinds of trade-offs that could be made to reduce the deficit. Um, I also have heard the White House say, what's your plan? If you don't know what the plan is, you can't even begin a conversation. And we've heard a whole range of plans, um, but you gotta remember that in a house where it only takes a handful of members to call for a vote of no confidence in the speaker, the plan that matters is what plan can he take to the floor? I don't have a clue what that plan is. That was Jack Lew. He was Treasury Secretary from 2013 to 2017 in the Obama administration. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Memphis is grappling with how far to take reforms in the wake of the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. You can keep us with us. We can keep stay with you no matter where you go. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org, online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More than 39,000 people are now confirmed dead in Turkey and Syria following last week's powerful earthquake. Turkey's president says it's the deadliest quake to hit his country since its founding a century ago. As humanitarian aid continues arriving in the region, NPR's Jason Bobian says some quake survivors near Antakya are getting food from a local bakery. In hot time, most businesses remain closed, but this bakery is open early in the morning and a steady stream of people coming in. The the people behind the counter are are rushing to to get them bread, little rolls. They're also having some some coffee and, and tea. Nikki Haley is expected to formally kick off her 2024 Republican presidential campaign today at an event in Charleston, South Carolina. The state's former governor announced her run for the White House yesterday in a campaign video. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben says more Republicans are expected to soon join former President Donald Trump and Haley as candidates for the presidency. One of them is South Carolina Senator, uh, same state as Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. He and Mike Pence, former vice president, have been making trips to Iowa. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has also said recently that he is going to decide soon. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy.
The Boston City Council is expected to vote today on moving forward with creating an elected school committee. Right now, the school committee is appointed by the mayor. Voters overwhelmingly agreed to change the school committee structure in 2021. Boston is the only district in the state that appoints its committee. Any change would need the approval of Mayor Wu, who has not fully supported the idea. After nine months, Massachusetts is fully out of drought conditions. State environmental officials say above-normal rainfall across the state last month ended the drought on the Cape and Islands, as well as areas north of Boston. Those were the last spots where drought conditions persisted. Vandana Rao is the state's water policy director. She's concerned there may be a relapse. If there's not a whole lot of snow, it may start to impact what happens typically in the spring. So... Things are looking good for now. I hope it continues that way, and I hope we get to see a little bit more snow. Some experts say despite wetter conditions of late, some water sources will take longer to replenish ahead of summer. The MBTA says a garage for electric buses in Quincy will open a year behind schedule. That means it won't be done until 2025. The T says the delay is partly because bids for the project came in over budget. T officials tell the Boston Globe the estimated $400 million price tag is due to high labor costs in the Boston area. The T hopes the garage will improve bus service and allow it to increase its number of electric buses. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services. With two new community behavioral health centers, open 24-7 in Danvers and Lynn, ElliottCHS.org. David Posternock scored the game winner in overtime for the Bruins last night. They beat the Stars 3-2 in Dallas. The Bees will visit the Nashville Predators tomorrow. The Celtics fell to the Bucks 131-125 in overtime last night in Milwaukee. The Seas are back home tonight to play the Detroit Pistons. Spring training gets underway for the Red Sox today. Pitchers and catchers will have their first workouts in Fort Myers, Florida. Their first spring training game will be February 24th. And in your forecast, we'll eventually have sunny skies today once the clouds slowly move away. It'll be windy with a high in the upper 50s. Tonight, clouds return and it falls to the upper 40s. A high in the low 60s tomorrow under increasingly cloudy skies. There's a chance of showers in the late afternoon. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In Memphis, Tennessee, the city council has taken the first steps toward reforming the police department weeks after the police beating of Tyree Nichols. That item passes. The measures that passed are designed to limit police traffic stops and toughen the consequences for excessive force. They earned near-unanimous council support. But when it comes to longer-term visions for the police in their city, people in Memphis have differing views. NPR's Adrian Florido spoke with some of them. The neighborhood where Ricky Floyd lives, Frazier, in North Memphis, has struggled with violent crime for a long time. 
he drove me to the intersection where, in the fall of 2020, it almost claimed his life. Floyd had left the Christian church where he is lead pastor and noticed a car following his truck too closely. He moved over to let it pass. So you stopped right here? I stopped right here, and then they stopped right here. All of a sudden, I hear shots. Floyd had one of his employees in the passenger seat. And I said, man, are they shooting? And then he says, yeah, yeah, get out of here, get out of here. So uh, I spin around and just began to take off flying. He quickly realized he'd been shot. The bullet passed through his left leg. He later learned the shooter had beef with his passenger. He was caught in the crossfire of senseless violence, the kind Floyd says has left many Memphians feeling unsafe in their city. I, the pastor, have been carjacked in Memphis. I, the pastor, have been shot. There is no public safety in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis has one of the nation's highest violent crime rates, which the city has responded to with a big push to hire more police. It's also why the police chief created the specialized crime unit whose officers last month pulled over and brutally beat Tyree Nichols. Pastor Floyd was horrified when he saw the video of that beating. One word came to my mind, and that was, why? He knew the police would face backlash, justifiably so. He himself has served on the civilian review board that investigates complaints of excessive force by police. And he's glad the officers have been charged with murder, but he also worried. Here's my concern and my fear that at the sake of firing, arresting those officers who were totally out of order, we're going to declaw and detooth our police officers. Floyd thinks the police are critical to keeping crime in Memphis from getting even worse. Across town in South Memphis, Ann Adams had a different response to the video because of something that had happened to her 23-year-old son just a few weeks earlier. The two of them were about to leave their house. He'd gone out first to warm up the car. When she stepped out, she saw a police officer approaching the car. My son sitting there with his head down playing his video game. And I look up and see this police officer and I say, what's the problem? How may I help you? Immediately, after I asked them, how can I help you? He retreated to his vehicle. Adams says the officer and his partner drove off without a word. It disturbed her. He'd been approaching her son in her car on her property, but she didn't dwell on it too much until a few weeks later when she saw the video of Tyree Nichols being dragged out of his car and beaten. It took me back to that day because my thought was it could have been my child. Every time I think about Tyree, I think about that day. As a black woman, anxiety about the police has always been a part of Adams's life. But she'd never been driven to protest the police. In fact, she used to be a correctional officer and is now an armed private security guard. When she saw the video of Tyree Nichols, though, something changed. The Memphis police, she decided, needed to be severely reined in. And so, for the first time in her life last week, she attended a city council meeting to demand that. I was born black. Miss Adams. I will die black. Miss but Adams. I don't want to be murdered just because I am black, and I don't want that fate for my son. Or when Councilman J.B. Smiley saw the video of Tyree Nichols being beaten, he knew the city council would have to act. Activists and residents like Ann Adams were demanding it. We're at the peak of activism. We're at the peak of community engagement. And since it happened right here in Memphis, the community members are showing up. 
His question was what kind of reforms should he pursue and how aggressive could he be? Because yes, activists and residents were showing up like never before to demand aggressive reforms, but he was also getting calls from people who shared the concerns of Pastor Ricky Floyd, who didn't want him to hamstring the police's ability to fight crime in their city. It's the people who vote older, more seasoned black people. What you will find out is they value the police. They believe police keeps them safe. As a son of Memphis, he knows that sentiment is widespread in his city. That's the, the dilemma of being in this position. I have to be mindful of that, but I also have to be mindful of the people who live in East Memphis who just witnessed a young man be beat to death. Like, you have to think about these things and figure out what's the best solution. Smiley wasn't sure whether the council could legally ban the kind of specialized units whose officers beat Tyree Nichols, as many activists have been calling for. He's also not been talking about cutting the police department's budget, another demand. But he and his council allies did introduce six ordinances last week. One limits the police's ability to pull people over for routine traffic violations. Another bans the use of unmarked cop cars. A third would make public the names of officers who use excessive force. All the ordinances passed a key first vote, making it the biggest step Memphis has taken in recent history to reform its police department. Activists in the crowd were pleased. We're making greater strides this time than we have in the past. L.J. Abraham is part of a collective of activists who drafted the demands upon which most of the ordinances were based. We still have a long way to go. There are some other things that we're seeking, but I think this is a good start. I think it is a good way to let the city of Memphis know that we are very serious about reimagining and re-imaging police um, here in Memphis. Before Tyree Nichols' beating, the kinds of reforms that passed last week would have been near impossible to get approved. But the video of the beating, Abraham says, changed everything. That was one of those knee-jerk moments where you, you have to respond. Like, there's no other choice. You don't have a choice in this. You just have to get out and do what needs to be done to make sure that it never happens again to another person in your city. Everyone agrees on that, she says, even if not all Memphians agree about what should come next for the city's police force. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Memphis. This afternoon, on All Things Considered, Washington State has passed new laws to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So how much can the state really change the way the people and businesses use energy? You can stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen to us on the radio. It's NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, our series on forever chemicals in Massachusetts continues. Some Commonwealth residents who rely on well water say a lack of state oversight leaves them vulnerable to those chemicals. And in our next hour, we visit northwest Syria, where people are struggling to survive in the aftermath of last week's earthquake. In your forecast, high winds today will help clouds clear away for sunny skies by the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. Tonight, back to cloudy skies while temperatures fall into the 40s. Tomorrow, low 60s and cloudy. We may see showers after about 4 p.m. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. 
who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at VRTX.com. Now in business news, Waltham-based Vicarious Surgical says it's laying off 14 percent of its staff. The Boston Business Journal estimates that means about 23 people will lose their jobs. Vicarious says the cuts mostly affect its sales and administrative employees. It adds the move should help it stay in business for at least the next two years. People may soon be able to enjoy live music and beer on a corner of the Boston Common. The city is giving Emerson College and Trillium Brewing the green light to open a beer garden and stage on May 1st. It'll be located on the corner of Boylston and Tremont Streets next to the Boylston Tea Station. The move is part of the city's master plan to revive the park. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. More than half a million people in Massachusetts get their drinking water from private wells. But there are no state or federal rules about those private wells and the toxic chemicals known as PFAS. Those chemicals have been linked to a growing list of health concerns. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, this lack of oversight leaves private well owners vulnerable to these so-called forever chemicals. Bill Watcher lives in Stowe, a small town about 30 miles outside Boston. Hello, Bill. Hi, Hi, Barbara. Hi. How are you? There's a farm across the street from his house and woods in the backyard. For a town this size, it has a lot of conservation land and still a lot of open spaces. So it has that bucolic feel to it. The town also has a couple known sources of PFAS pollution, like an old fire station and a former mill. PFAS chemicals have been used in consumer products, industry, and firefighting foam for decades, and contamination is widespread. So Watcher decided to have his well tested for PFAS, just to be safe. When the result came back, he was shocked. It was 52 parts per trillion, more than twice the state limit for a public water system. He says it was scary. I mean, you've lived here for 37 years, and you've brought up two children here, and so you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. Watcher wasn't sure where to turn. There are no state or town rules for testing or filtering water from individual private wells, so he searched the Internet. A full house filtration system can cost thousands of dollars. Watcher found a smaller filter to install under his kitchen sink. It cost close to $600, and he paid for it himself. It is a very confusing system, and it really leads to a lot of regional inequities. Amy Shea is the president and CEO of the Health Foundation of Central Massachusetts. And she says Watcher's situation is not surprising. In more rural parts of the state, there is not public water infrastructure, very few protections, lots of risk for contamination, 
homes as a result of poorly maintained systems. In Stowe, every single home relies on private well water. That makes it impossible to know the full extent of PFAS contamination in the town. So the red dots, the dots uh, signify public water supplies. In her office in Town Hall, Stowe Town Administrator Denise Demkoski has spread maps across a long table. So this first map, this is an overview of Stowe in general. She points to PFAS hotspots near the former firefighting academy, a Bose facility, and an old mill. So green means no PFAS, yellow is the next level. Um, then it goes to pink and then red and now a purple level, um, which I was told they created just for Stowe because we had levels over 90 parts per trillion. So they had to create a new color for us. But most of the map isn't colored in at all. Not because there's no PFAS, but because people haven't reported their test results or haven't tested at all. Testing a well for PFAS can cost hundreds of dollars, more than some can afford or want to pay. And what if they do test and what happens? And then, you know, some people can't afford a $5,000 treatment system and then the filter's on top of that. There's another reason besides cost that private well owners are reluctant to test for PFAS. They're concerned about lowering the value of their home. And if their property turns out to be a PFAS source, they could be liable for damages to their neighbors' homes. You know, I think there's that hesitancy, and there are people who are concerned about that. Jennifer Peterson is the executive director of the Massachusetts Waterworks Association, an industry group. She's also a concerned homeowner with a private well. And I have not yet tested my well because I'm really not quite certain about the liability that might be incurred by doing so. Some towns are forcing the issue. The Harvard Board of Health requires residents to test for PFAS before selling their house and Stowe's Board of Health is considering the same. Clean water advocate Amy Shea says the state should step in and regulate private wells like private septic systems. I have always found it so interesting that the state regulates the wastewater that leaves somebody's home, and yet it does not regulate the water that is entering a home and being consumed. Bills pending in the state legislature do include provisions for private well owners, like giving them access to money from a proposed PFAS trust fund, or allowing the state to regulate private wells. The legislation will likely face pushback from homeowners who don't want the government meddling in their private property. But Stowe homeowner Bill Watcher says private well owners shouldn't be nervous about testing for PFAS. When it comes to your drinking water, he says it's better to know what's there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Our PFAS reporting continues tomorrow morning with scientists learning more about how these forever chemicals affect our bodies. For tips on how to reduce your exposure to PFAS, visit WBUR.org. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Hump Day. Oh, it feels like a hump day this week, Rupa. I know, right? <laughs> I don't know why either. It's been, The weather's been quite kind to us, but... Yeah. Anyway. But you're going to have some excitement, a celebrity guest. We are. So t- today is our first conversation with new Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey since she became governor. It's been a little bit longer than a month now that she's been in office. Um, I bet... A lot of listeners don't know. So Steve Brown has an office in the State House, mm-hmm. WBUR senior State House reporter, with a great, you know, solid sound connection for professional broadcasting there. So she's actually just going to walk over from her office, 
Steve's going to meet up with her. We're going to connect her through Steve Brown's office, and we're going to have a, you know, a wide-ranging conversation. She's got a very long list of to-dos. Uh, Rupa, what was really interesting to me is that we put out the call less than 24 hours ago to listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a texting group, uh, 617-766-0382 if you want to join it. 25 questions in less than 24 hours, and you know what they really want to know about? The tea. Yeah. Yeah. So lots to talk about, but I'm guessing we're going to do some tea. <laughs> have you been to Steve's office? I, I At the very beginning, pre-COVID, I have not been there since. It's like a museum, and I will say he has slept there on at least one occasion. Amazing. <laughs> and I haven't f- been in, just sort of passed by. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind reiterating that uh, the number, the text number? 617-766-0382. You text the word Boston. Thank you, CCL. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 752. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. The government has gone after the maker of Fortnite, saying it's been illegally profiting off young players, and that is going to cost the company big money. I think it's a big enough fine that it's going to send shockwaves across the gaming industry and cause other platforms to clean up their practices. How government lawsuits are letting the video game industry know. It's on watch on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skip. And I'm Asma Khalid. Less than a month after the BBC released a documentary critical of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, tax authorities raided the British broadcasters' offices in Mumbai and Delhi. The raids that continue for a second day have raised concerns about press freedom in a country that's been touted as the world's largest democracy. From Delhi, Shalu Yadav has this report. Big story we are breaking at the south. The BBC office in Delhi has been raided by the... Tuesday morning started on an anxious note for BBC News staff in India. Income tax officials suddenly turned up at their offices in Delhi and Mumbai. Up there at the fifth floor, what we have been told, I'm reporting again, let me tell you from the KG mark. This is and the British broadcaster became the centre of the news here. The raids come just weeks after the BBC aired a two-part documentary in the UK which highlighted the role of Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the anti-Muslim violence in the state of Gujarat in 2002. Modi was then the chief minister of the state. Responding to the raid, a spokesperson for Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP, Gaurav Bhatia, accused the BBC of smearing India and called it, quote, the world's most corrupt and rubbish corporation. There is a reporting that was done by the BBC in a programme They unleashed the most venomous attack against our country. The BBC said the film was rigorously researched and a wide range of voices were included in the documentary, including those from the BJP. But there has been a fallout. BBC journalists working in India say they are alarmed by the raid. One of them told NPR that the tax officials took his and his colleagues' phones away and asked them to leave their working station. We're not using his name and are using a voice actor because he's not authorized to speak to the media and he worries about retribution. 
The officials were searching for some key words in the employees' computers. Our work was hampered. The mood in the office was grim while the search lasted. In a statement, the BBC said it was supporting its staff during this time and that its output continues as normal. Critics say the raid adds further evidence to India's checkered record on press freedom, which now ranks 150 out of 180 countries in the World Press Freedom Index. Amnesty International, which pulled out of India in 2020, says tax rates on the BBC are, quote, an affront to free speech. What they're saying is that you better fall in line. And what really shocks me is that actually Prime Minister Modi has a huge reputation globally. He is the leader of the world's largest democracy. Jyoti Malhotra, a senior journalist and a media critic in Delhi, says that the government's move might have the opposite effect than work in Modi's favour. For the government to show that it's doing this at a time when the government wants to project India's image abroad as being one of a vibrant democracy, I think this is just going to have absolutely the opposite effect. And it shows a certain insecurity and a certain brittleness on the part of the government. But for now, the message is clear. India's trouble with media that has continued under the Modi government wouldn't spare even the world's most influential broadcaster. For NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. On this day, 100 years ago, Columbia Records held a recording session with a singer named Bessie Smith. The country at large didn't know her then, but soon found out because she was launching a career as one of the most important blues singers ever. She began with one of the biggest hits of 1923. She just sang the name of the song there, Downhearted Blues. Before this, Smith had amassed a sizable following, playing shows along railroad lines on the East Coast and the South. But it wasn't until Columbia Records came calling that her influence went nationwide. Downhearted Blues went on to sell two million copies. And unlike many recording artists, Bessie Smith got paid. Dee Rees directed the biopic Bessie for HBO, and she talked with NPR about how rare that was for a black woman in the 1920s. No matter what you did, whether you were washing clothes or cleaning somebody's house or doing music, the terms were exploitive. So in that time, she was able to kind of demand what she was worth and able to organize herself in such a way that she was able to sing what she wants to sing and like go on tour. And she even bought her own luxury railroad car so she and her touring ensemble could travel in style. Bessie Smith's career, though, was short-lived. Changing tastes and the 1929 stock market crash derailed her career. In this archival recording, Columbia Records producer John Hammond remembers trying to help. When the Depression came, that wiped off the record business as we had known it. So in 1932, I went down to Philadelphia where she was working as a hostess in a speakeasy. And I tried to persuade her that she should record. And she said, well, John, I just want you to know that these are hard times and, uh, and nobody wants to hear no blues. 
Bessie Smith died in 1937, and even though she'd lived a lavish lifestyle, her gravesite was unusually spare with an unmarked tombstone. Until one of her admirers in later days, Janis Joplin, helped to pay to replace it. Bessie Smith's new epitaph read, the greatest blues singer in the world will never stop singing. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Five Michigan State students remain in critical condition as police seek the gunman's motive in Monday's shooting that killed three people. It's Wednesday, February 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up in the wake of that shooting, Michigan Democrats are pushing for gun restrictions. The truth is words are not good enough. We must act and we will. Also this hour, a part of the sun has broken off and was swept up in a polar vortex. Scientists say it's not as dangerous as it sounds. The sun's outer atmosphere is like a churning, bubbling cauldron, right? And occasionally stuff heats and cools and gets ejected out of the atmosphere. And U.S. officials say the unidentified objects shot down by fighter jets are likely benign. In sports, the Bruins win, Celtics lose. Skies clear for a mostly sunny day in the upper 50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The death toll from the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey has reached more than 39,000 people. Little aid is reaching northern Syria. The former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes, Stephen Rapp, is there. He says the United Nations has failed to quickly send aid to Syria. He blames the U.N. for waiting for permission from Syria's dictator to move aid across the border from Turkey into rebel-held areas of Syria announced that whatever the situation might be normally, this is a humanitarian disaster. In that situation, there are no borders, there are no differences, and that certainly will, uh, in Turkey, in Syria, wherever, will be providing assistance, and that's consistent with international law. Nearly all borders have been closed between rebel-held areas of Syria and Turkey because of war, making it extremely difficult for rescuers to reach Syrians in need. The white gunman who shot and killed 10 black people in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, will be sentenced today. Peyton Gendron committed the mass shooting last May. From member station WBFO, Dave Debo reports. Gendron pleaded guilty to murdering 10, targeting a neighborhood with the stated goal of killing black people there. For that, he'll be given life in prison without parole. But attorneys for victims' families say he will first issue an apology to grieving people like Pam Young, whose mother was killed in the attack. My thing is to be able to look him in the eyes. He must have looked at my mother and seen her just as a black person and unworthy. So I want to look him in the eyes. I want him to see me 
Gendron faces 23 other federal charges that could get him the death penalty if U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland approves that. Experts say the apology is designed to influence that decision and maybe spare his life. For NPR News, I'm Dave Debo in Buffalo. Members of two House subcommittees will hold a hearing in a Texas border town today. They'll examine the large numbers of migrants who are crossing illegally into the U.S. NPR's Kristen Wright reports Republicans continue to target Biden administration immigration policies. The field hearing is titled The Biden Administration's Border Crisis is a Public Health Crisis, highlighting concerns among Republicans of the administration's handling of the steady flow of migrants crossing the southern border. In Westlaco, Texas, lawmakers will discuss the administration's immigration policies and future actions to secure the border. The hearing will also focus on the trafficking of fentanyl into the U.S. The trip comes as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy prepares to lead a small Republican delegation to the Arizona-Mexico border tomorrow. House Republicans are investigating Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for a possible impeachment inquiry. He said he has no plans of stepping down. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A rent control plan from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu goes before the city council today. The policy would tie annual rent increases to inflation with a hard cap at 10 percent. But Mike Leba of City Life Vida Urbana says advocacy groups plan on pushing for the cap to be even lower. This is a really big step. We've been in this fight for rent control for almost three decades. So we're excited, we're celebrating, and also we know that It's going to be uh, an uphill battle from here. Many developers oppose any form of rent control. The plan needs approval from the city council, state legislature, and governor to become law. Newly released documents reveal more issues with the company building the T's new orange and red line cars. Documents obtained by the Boston Herald show the Chinese company CRRC reused hardware critical to the train's safety. Since first being put into service, the trains have been pulled from the tracks several times over brake and battery issues. The T says the train replacement project is now nearly two years behind schedule. The New Hampshire Supreme Court is weighing the latest appeal filed by Pam Smart. She's serving a life sentence without parole for her role in the 1990 murder of her husband. As Todd Bookman reports, the New Hampshire court heard arguments yesterday. Pam Smart was found guilty of orchestrating the death of her husband. That killing, carried out by teenagers, sparked national interest in the case. Since her conviction, Smart's obtained advanced college degrees and considers herself a model inmate. But last year, the executive council declined her latest request for a commutation hearing. She appealed, but Laura Lombardi, attorney for the state, told the justices there's no requirement that she be afforded a hearing. This is not about justice. This is about mercy. So the petitioner received all the justice to which she was entitled through the criminal proceedings and any collateral proceedings through the judicial branch that she could have brought. A lawyer for Smart countered that the severity of her sentence mandates some opportunity for appeal and due process. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. A Falmouth research group is releasing rare footage of the Titanic shipwreck today. The Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution is making over an hour of new footage available to the public. Woods Hole helped find the shipwreck back in 1985. It also helped with the first dive exploring the remains. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. The shorthanded Celtics lost to the Bucks last night in overtime. The final in Milwaukee was 131-125. to The Seas will be at home tonight to face the Pistons. The Bruins beat the Stars 3-2 to in overtime last night in Dallas. The Bees' next game is tomorrow against the Predators in Nashville. Northeastern is the winner of this year's women's college hockey bean pot. They beat BC 2-1 last night. BU beat Harvard in the consolation game. A cloudy start today, but becoming mostly sunny. The high will be in the mid-50s. Partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will only drop to the 40s. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a chance for rain in the afternoon and evening. It'll be in the lower 60s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. We now visit a war zone that's also an earthquake zone. We're going to hear from people from northern Syria, where many buildings toppled last week. In that region, many buildings were already down after more than a decade of civil war. The earthquake has now killed more than 2,000 people and left tens of thousands homeless including many children. Our colleague Ruth Sherlock has covered the unnatural disaster of Syria's civil war for years. Now she's covering Syria's natural disaster and visits a place where people are finding shelter. So we're in a gym. It's a basketball pitch, actually, with some chairs around the edges. And around those chairs, people have set up these makeshift tents made out of blankets. And somebody's used a table tennis table and strung up a string to a hook in the wall and strung up a blanket on it to try to create some privacy. Shadia Afra has four children, twin boys who are two and two little girls, they're six and eight. The twins stand beside her as through an interpreter she tells me about the night of the earthquake. It was judgment day, like I can't even describe to you in words what they felt. There's some people on the blankets, some people on these mini little mattresses, some people on chairs. There are no bathrooms. To wash, they knock on the doors of strangers' homes. And they're also dealing with the deaths of relatives and friends, something they've had to cope with for years in a country that's still in a state of civil war. Outside of here, they've been in funerals ever since the earthquake. What stories is she telling her kids? What tricks is she using to try to make this normal somehow for them? Yeah, wherever you are in Syria, uh, the small kids, they get way older way too quick from the realities that they witness every single day. There's nothing that they haven't seen yet. We leave the gym turned shelter and drive a few minutes down the road. Okay, we've arrived at the hospital in Afrin. Inside, a photographer tries to show me pictures of eight dead children. Their bodies are lying unclaimed in the hospital morgue. 
He says he'll put the photos in the local police station in case anyone's looking for them. Right now, we're trying to just stabilize her, treat her. Um, hopefully, she'll be okay. Small little girl with curly brown hair lying in bed. Somebody's blown up a surgical glove, and she's holding it as if she was holding somebody's hand. It's heartbreaking. Noor is three. She has cuts all over her face and is missing her right leg. So she was under the rubble after the earthquake. They had to amputate her leg while she's there. Noor's father is the only other survivor in her immediate family. Doctors say he visits, but he hasn't yet built up the courage to tell her that her mum is gone. In another room, we meet Mohammed. He's eight, and his left arm and leg are in casts. There's a plastic toy car next to him. His great-aunt, Yasmin Marjan, sits beside him. He said for three days till they could, like, take them out of the rubble. Who's they? Him and him the and father, the father and the mother of the of the kid. Are they alive? His parents? No, they all passed away. Yeah. He's got a sister as well. Yeah, all of them died. He used to have sisters. Marjan is his closest surviving relative now. She says she'll take care of him, but she's not sure how because her home is also destroyed. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Afrin. When Nikki Haley was the governor of South Carolina, she had gained national attention for how she responded to a shooting in which a white supremacist killed nine black parishioners at a church in Charleston. Now Haley, a Republican, is hoping her past leadership will bring her national attention again, this time as she runs for president. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports. One clear theme of Haley's presidential announcement this week is unity. And to emphasize that, she pointed to her state's response to hate. We turned away from fear toward God. Haley is the first to challenge Donald Trump for the Republican nomination and is one of several potential candidates who vehemently opposed Trump, then embraced him, and now will run against him. And with Haley, the topic of race highlights how her politics have shifted. In the wake of the Charleston shooting, Haley famously signed the law removing the Confederate flag from the state capitol grounds. For those who wish to show their respect for the flag on their private property, no one will stand in your way. But the state house is different. Haley got bipartisan respect for that decision, and she has often referenced that as an important moment of her governorship. She spoke of it to slam Donald Trump in 2016. We saw and looked at true hate in the eyes last year in Charleston. I will not stop until we fight a man that chooses not to disavow the KKK. That is not a part of our party. That's but then Haley eventually served in the Trump administration and became a prime example of how Trump reshaped the party. Trump put race at the forefront of American politics, from immigration to policing to education. And Trump's support has been correlated with certain racist beliefs. In her announcement video, the Indian-American Haley references her own racial experience, but then immediately blasts Democrats as racially divisive. But simply casting Democrats as the enemy won't unify all Republicans, particularly those who are disgusted with what the GOP has become. Doug Brannon is a former Republican lawmaker in South Carolina who led the 2015 charge to remove the Confederate flag. 
Mr. Trump gave people license to say things that before him they didn't feel they could say. He gave them a mouthpiece, and because of him, they were emboldened. Brannon, in fact, declined to say whether he would vote for a Republican or Democrat in 2024. Trump upended what it means to be Republican. Teresa Cosby at Furman University points out that Haley is often mistaken for a moderate. But right now, being more extreme may appeal more to primary voters in a swath of red states. The battle is between Republicans and the primaries. And so you don't pay any penalty for playing to that extreme right ideology that is replicated at the national level in states like Florida and Texas. And in that vein, Cosby doesn't think Haley's Confederate flag removal will help her win the nomination. It's just going to score her points with people who want the Republican Party to return to some normalcy. And how many of those groups are left in the Republican Party? And Haley may not bring it up much anyway. While the Charleston shooting was a part of her announcement video, the push to take down the Confederate flag was not. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. The campus of Michigan State University, where a gunman killed three students and wounded five others on Monday, is just about three miles from the state capitol building. Democrats are in control of both the state legislature and the governorship for the first time in 40 years there in Michigan. And they want to use this power to pass gun control legislation. Here's the state's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. As parents, we tell our kids it's going to be okay. We say that all the time. But the truth is words are not good enough. We must act and we will. Rick Pluta joins us next. He's from Michigan Public Radio. Welcome. Uh, hello. Okay, so what are the lawmakers and the governor hoping to pass? Well, Governor Whitmer has called on the legislature to pass laws that Democrats have been trying to get through Republican legislatures for years. And Republicans are pushing back, saying, well, let's find some consensus on things like mental health services. Democrats are saying, though, at a minimum, they want universal background checks, which means a check on criminal histories before someone's allowed to buy a firearm, especially a high-capacity semi-automatic weapon, um, a red flag law, which is a court order if there's a determination that a gun owner poses a threat, and safe storage laws, that when guns are not being used, that they need to be locked up or at least have a trigger lock. Well, let's talk about the political context here, because Michigan represents such a broad swath of America politically and and otherwise. I mean, it's a place that's elected a lot of Republicans, even though Democrats are in charge for the moment. So what is public sentiment around gun regulation there? Sure. Well, I mean, Michigan does have a thriving gun culture. Uh, hunting is a uh, big deal here. Also, I mean, the right to bear arms is in our state constitution. Hmm. And unlike the U.S. Constitution, the Michigan Constitutional Clause actually has a self-defense provision. It's one of the reasons why there's a constitutionally protected right to uh, bear arms here. But there is also a poll that was taken in December, which remembers after the election, that found 90% of Michigan voters uh, who were surveyed favor background checks for gun purchases. 74% allow courts to take guns from people people 
who are deemed a danger to themselves or others. And that's pretty consistent with earlier polls. So Democrats would seem to have the wind to their backs on this. But their majorities in the legislature that you referred to, they're very narrow. One vote in the House, one vote in the Senate. Hmm. And that could make the politics problematic as Republicans are pushing back, saying, let's find some consensus. Again, mental health services. But Democrats aren't buying it, saying that you had your chance to do these sorts of things and blew it off, that when it comes to reasons to trust you, we are not seeing them. Well, how soon could those narrow majorities act, if at all? Well, I mean, probably not this week, just because this is still so raw. So Democrats haven't set a timetable, but they certainly appear to getting all or most of these adopted and sent to Governor Whitmer. And like we said, she's ready to sign them into law. Rick, thanks so much for the update. We'll continue following your reporting. Thank you. That's Rick Pluta in Michigan. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at who might be sending unidentified flying objects over North America and why. It's 819. All right, so you hit snooze one too many times. You can't find your keys. But Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey joins us. She's one month into office and her to-do list pretty long. From Boston rent control to a new head for the Massachusetts State Police and some roads and bridges and trains along the way. Maura Healy is on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy skies gradually clear this morning, and by this afternoon, it should be mostly sunny. It might be pretty windy, too. The high will be near 57. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 48. Tomorrow, clouds may give way to showers in the late afternoon. We'll have a high near 62. It's 40 degrees in Boston. That is local band Acoustic Nomads. You can catch them Thursday night at WBUR City Space. They'll be performing songs from their new album as part of our ongoing Sound On series. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. When the U.S. shot down a Chinese balloon that floated over American territory, part of China's response was whataboutism. China says the United States sends spy balloons too, a claim that U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken denies. We do not send spy balloons over China, period. For its part, China denies its balloon was designed for espionage, and it claims to have no knowledge of those other objects the U.S. has shot down in recent days. So where do they all come from? Dr. Timothy Heath, a senior researcher on defense and international issues for the RAND Corporation, spoke with A. Martinez. So, Tim, just to be clear, as far as we know, these most recent balloons could have come from anywhere. If a balloon, though, is coming west of the Continental 48, is it fair to say that it comes from China or Russia? If it is a balloon and it does have a payload, China or Russia are the most likely candidates. However, we cannot rule out the possibility that these devices could have been launched by private actors, perhaps uh, weather monitoring organizations or others. It's worth bearing in mind that balloons are difficult to control and navigate. At the end of the day, they are at the mercy of winds, uh, and there's very limited capability to steer these devices once they go up into the atmosphere. Now, you mentioned weather monitoring. Um, what are some other non-military uses of these things? Well, balloons have been used for law enforcement, surveillance purposes. The U.S. government has used balloons to monitor the border, the southern border with Mexico. In the past, the U.S. government has deployed balloons to support law enforcement operations to track drug traffickers in our country. And the U.S. military has invested in research about using balloons to conduct surveillance, intelligence collection, and potentially to move small amounts of cargo uh, across vast distances. The U.S. military also deployed balloons to support targeting and reconnaissance in its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. When it comes to cargo, what kinds of things could they use them to transport? You can move small amounts of military equipment across vast distances. This is an idea that is being explored, but currently has not been operationalized by the U.S. military. And when it comes to China's balloon program, what are they typically using them for? China has used balloons for domestic surveillance. They've used them to monitor their borders, and they have apparently deployed large numbers of balloons to carry out intelligence collections and surveillance in countries around the world. Why would they use balloons instead of, say, satellites? First off, they're cheap and can be quickly deployed. Second, they are often difficult to detect because they have little metal in them. You really have to have radars tuned to detect them in order to see them. Another reason that balloons can be favored over satellites is they are unpredictable. They follow weather patterns and have limited steering. And in addition to their low observable status, that can be harder to detect and anticipate compared to satellites, which follow a very predictable orbital path. 
another advantage of balloons over satellites is that balloons can dwell over a period of time over a certain location and actually get closer to what you want to observe compared to a satellite. Why wouldn't someone know that their device was captured or destroyed? Is that something that uh, typically would not be surprising that uh, no one would say, hey, that's mine? <laughs> yes, if it was a private actor, these objects clearly have some monetary value and uh, probably represented at least some degree of investment. So uh, a private actor would have a good incentive to try to claim ownership and try to recover the object and whatever information it may have collected. That's Dr. Timothy Heath of RAND. Tim, thanks a lot. Okay, no problem. Did a piece of the sun really break off recently? A massive solar flare has raised that question. And Scott McIntosh took it on. He's deputy director at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and he says the answer is yes. Bits of the sun of various sizes break off all the time. You know, the sun's outer atmosphere is like a churning, bubbling cauldron, right? And occasionally stuff heats and cools and gets ejected out of the atmosphere. Some of it falls back down and cools and some of it goes off into interplanetary space. McIntosh says plasma can form a large loop on the sun's surface. When that happens, it's called a solar prominence. And they are common, although this recent one that's getting all the attention was different. Sure, we see lots of these guys on the edge of the sun and we see them doing their little circular dance. But this guy, it was the whole thing, right? The whole thing lifted off and went around. I love the personification. This guy lifted off. Now Macintosh is wondering what caused this unique solar vortex. We have a strong suspicion that what happens at the sun's poles, because it reverses its magnetic field every 22 years, about every 11 years, there's a sign change at the poles. Something in that polar reversal process, we call it, is tied to how the sun's magnetic field works, which is the thing that propagates through the whole solar system. While scientists keep looking for answers, do not be alarmed. McIntosh assures us this stuff poses no risks to us people down here on Earth. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we hear the story of Bozma St. John. She's a marketing exec who details her triumphs and tragedies in a new memoir called The Urgent Life. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on the good old radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, California U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein has announced that she won't run for re-election next year. And NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith looks at the role shame plays in current politics. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at Brandeis.edu slash Rose. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Police in East Lansing say they still have no motive for Monday night's deadly attack on the campus of Michigan State University. Three students were killed, five others critically injured, when a gunman opened fire inside an academic building and later the student union. The death toll in Turkey and Syria now tops 39,000 following last week's powerful earthquake. More bodies are being found in the rubble of collapsed buildings nine days after the magnitude 7.8 quake struck. Fewer than a dozen survivors were located yesterday. Turkey's president says it's the deadliest quake to hit his country since it was founded a century ago. A new report says the Russian government is running dozens of child custody centers for children Moscow forced to leave Ukraine. The findings are from Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab in conjunction with the State Department. As NPR's Deborah Amos reports, researchers say the children were taken without parental consent. There are 40 camps from the Black Sea coast all the way to Siberia. The camp that's furthest east is closer to the coast of Alaska than Ukraine. The lab researchers document about 6,000 children. That is what they could verify. They believe there are thousands more held in Russia without the consent of their parents. Dow futures are down 139 points this morning. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. One week after a fire, leaders with Brockton Hospital aren't sure when the facility will reopen. The electrical fire last week forced the evacuation of nearly 200 patients. Hospital leaders are working to connect patients with other doctors' offices so they can get care. They add that staff will be paid while the hospital is closed. Boston Public Schools could be violating a state bidding law if it renews its current school bus operator's contract. That's the finding from the state inspector general. The IG tells the Boston Globe he's concerned because the district's current operator was its only bidder for the bus contract. BPS hasn't voted yet on whether to approve the deal. It's going to be another warmer-than-normal couple of days in the Boston area, just the latest in a warmer-than-normal winter. It's been unseasonably warm on Martha's Vineyard as well. The National Weather Service says last month was the warmest January ever recorded on the island. Meteorologist Tori Gozi says he isn't ready to blame this warm weather on climate change just yet. It's going to take climate scientists uh, a rather long time to look back at this month compared to previous months. And it does take a while to make a definitive statement whether or not it was due to climate change. He adds that most of the Northeast saw record warmth last month. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. The Bruins topped the Stars 3-2 in overtime last night in Dallas. The Bees will visit the Nashville Predators tomorrow. Overtime wasn't as successful for the Celtics. They lost to the Bucks 131-125 last night in Milwaukee. The Seas are back home tonight to face, the, to face the Detroit Pistons. Spring training gets underway for the Red Sox today in Florida. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports pitchers and catchers will have their first workout. Sox manager Alex Corus is off injured pitcher Chris Sales doing well and is set to pitch in the bullpen today and Saturday before facing live batters next week. Cora also promises the Sox will get on base more often this season. He says the attitude of the team is great. They can care less about what happened here last year or the year before or in a team. They, they don't care. 
They just care about this year and moving forward. Gora says the Sox have to get better as a team in every aspect of the game. Last season, the Sox finished dead last in the American League East. Opening day this year, March 30th, against the Baltimore Orioles at Fenway Park. But 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. We'll eventually have sunny skies today once the clouds slowly move away. It'll be windy with a high in the upper 50s. Tonight, clouds return and it falls to the upper 40s, a high in the low 60s tomorrow under increasingly cloudy skies. There's a chance of showers in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Republican Representative George Santos has provoked the use of a particular word, shame, as in no shame. Santos fabricated much of his life story but declines to step down from Congress, leading to this response from State Senator Jack Martins, who also represents New York's Long Island. It is probably impossible for us to get someone who has no shame to do what is right. NPR's Tamara Keith reports that shamelessness can be useful. There was a time when shame was a powerful force in American politics. That time is not now. And it makes surviving scandals easier than it used to be. We seem to be in a national version of that schoolyard game, Top This, that if you do want to get into the shame hall of fame, you have to do a lot more than you had to do even 10 years ago. That is former Democratic Congressman Anthony Weiner, who has been following the Santos drama with interest. A little more than 10 years ago, Weiner tweeted out an up-close image of himself in boxer briefs. He lied about how it happened, and it only got worse from there. He ultimately resigned. I still today have people who stop me on the street and say, you know what, you probably could have survived that scandal if you just put your head down. That wasn't an option. Democratic leadership made it clear he had to go. Problem is that if you want to be successful in politics, you need to be able to represent your neighbors and your your constituents. It's really hard to do that when quite literally no one wants to be seen with you. Weiner later served time in prison for texting obscene material to a 15-year-old girl. These days, he hosts a local radio show. Santos has lied about, among other things, being Jewish, his mom dying on 9-11, and having employees killed in the Pulse nightclub shooting. But with a narrow majority in the House, Republicans have shown no real desire to force him out. Political scientist Laura Brown wrote her dissertation on congressional scandals. She says short of arrest, there is little to rein in a politician who doesn't care what people think. Everything else is just about some level of personal pride and shame. And if you are completely shameless, then you can get away with quite a bit in our world. Former President Donald Trump proved again and again that the rules of political gravity only apply if you care about the rules. Just a month before he was elected in 2016, old footage came out of him casually describing groping women. 
And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. <laughs> Whatever you want. Grab him by the Republicans were calling for him to step aside or refusing to defend him. Trump somehow turned it to his advantage, saying the media and establishment were out to get him. Then came Greg Gianforte, a Republican candidate for Congress in Montana. He body slammed a reporter on the eve of a 2017 special election and won anyway. He later pled guilty to misdemeanor assault. Before long, Trump had turned it into a punchline. And I said, oh, this is terrible. He's going to lose the election. Then I said, well, wait a minute. I know Montana pretty well. I think it might help him. And it did. Gianforte just kept on winning. And now he's the state's governor. And then there's former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat who faced a scandal about decades earlier dressing up in blackface. A who's who of Democrats demanded that he resign. But Northam persisted, and eventually the controversy faded. Northam is an exception of a Democrat who gutted it out, says Tim Miller, who worked on Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. He says Democratic politicians pay attention to bad headlines in the mainstream media. Democratic voters care, and the media environment that Democrats are in uh, lends itself much more to accountability. For Republican politicians, says Miller, a former Republican, it can be played as a witch hunt. Donald Trump and the conservative media echo chamber has made powering through a lot easier than it used to be. Shamelessness can give a politician staying power, but it is also corrosive, says Miller. Then you kind of get yourself into this place where there, there are you know, no excuses, no standards, no accountability. And that, says political scientist Laura Brown, is unfortunate. It reinforces the idea that many people already have, that all politicians are liars. Most people, when they think about politics, they think about our institutions, they think about Washington in general, they believe that all politicians are corrupt and everything is rigged. Not only does that degrade trust in institutions, she says, it leads people to believe that if it's rigged anyway, they might as well rig it in their own favor. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The nation's oldest sitting senator will not run for re-election next year. California's Diane Feinstein is retiring. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Marisa Lagos reports. Diane Feinstein first made national headlines in 1978 when she became San Francisco mayor following the assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and County Supervisor Harvey Milk. Then in 1992, she ran for U.S. Senate in what became known as the Year of the Woman. Here she is at the Democratic National Convention that summer. We Californians have a simple message. The status quo must go. She was a fresh face, one of a record four women elected to the Senate that year, bringing the grand total to six. And she made history in that election alongside Barbara Boxer. It was the first time two women had ever represented a single state in the U.S. Senate. Here's retired Senator Boxer. The fact that two women could get elected together, two Jewish women from the Bay Area, it was stunning. No one anticipated it at all. Feinstein became a senator at 59. Now at 89, she's squarely part of the establishment, the status quo. For much of her time in the Senate, Feinstein was a leader. She helped pass the now-expired assault weapons ban in 1994, and she went to battle with two presidential administrations, including Obama's, to fight for the release of information about the CIA's use of torture. We were such a different country, such a different state. 
Thad Kauser is a political science professor at the University of California, San Diego. California was a purple state. Certainly, this retirement feels like an apocalypse change in California politics. Over Feinstein's tenure, California has turned solidly blue and national party politics have become increasingly hostile, while Feinstein has remained a centrist, dedicated to reaching across the aisle. That's led to criticism she's out of touch with the Democratic base. There are also questions about whether she's declined mentally. And even before Feinstein's announcement, two high-profile Southern California Congress members, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, announced they would run for her seat. Kauser says they're both to the left of Feinstein. I think we're going to spend $100 million deciding which progressive Democrat is, is going to represent the state of California. But for the next two years, Feinstein has promised to continue the battle she's been fighting for the last three decades. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Mellon Foundation has announced that it's devoting $125 million to work focusing on mass incarceration. In your forecast, high winds today will help clouds clear away for sunny skies by the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. Tonight, back to cloudy skies while temperatures fall into the 40s. Tomorrow, low 60s and cloudy. We may see showers after about 4 p.m. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Now in business news, Massachusetts business leaders say attracting and retaining workers is their biggest challenge right now. According to the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, the state has around 115,000 more job openings than unemployment. Workers. As WBUR's Yasmin Amr reports, that worker shortage could get worse. Massachusetts is losing people. According to Mass Inc., the college educated population will decrease by almost 200,000 by the end of this decade. One reason people are moving. In his State of Massachusetts business address, John Regan, president of AIM, said the cost of living here is too high. Companies across all industries, from biotechnology to retail, are unable to fill positions with qualified candidates as the Commonwealth loses workers to lower cost states. Regan says business leaders support state policies that add housing, cut the individual tax rate, and increase visas for foreign workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. A Los Angeles skincare company plans to open eight locations across Greater Boston by this summer. Skin Laundry just opened its first New England location on Newberry Street in Boston. The company says by the spring, it'll expand to the South End, Linfield, and Hingham. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, dedicated to providing artisanal and sustainably sourced furniture with design consultants to help with your furnishing needs. CircleFurniture.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. A new initiative from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation is pledging $125 million to arts and humanities organizations that focus on mass incarceration. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siolkas talked to one group that's already benefiting from this new initiative. 
Dean Gillespie was imprisoned for 20 years for crimes that he was later found not to have committed. While he was incarcerated, he kept his sanity by creating miniature sculptures out of things he scavenged from around the prison. He created whimsical bits of Americana from stuff like the foil from packages of cigarettes, used tea bags, pins from the prison sewing room. He would kind of think in advance, like, oh, it's going to take me three months to make a little miniature camper. It's going to take me six months to make this dinette. And it was a way for him to feel like he was managing the time that the state had placed upon him as punishment. That's Nicole Fleetwood. She's a professor at NYU and the curator of a traveling visual arts exhibition called Marking Time. Fleetwood says her project was inspired by her own experiences visiting relatives incarcerated in Ohio. I would notice that in many of the visiting rooms of prisons, there would be these makeshift galleries where art would be on view. And also there were small provisional photo studios in the visiting room where incarcerated people could take pictures with their loved ones. Marking Time is just one of the arts and humanities projects being funded by the Mellon Foundation. Mellon notes that half of all Americans have a relative who's been imprisoned, meaning that the organizations it funds could reach a huge swath of people in this country, especially in communities of color who feel the overwhelming impact of mass incarceration. Since 2020, Mellon has already granted some $40 million to this effort, which it's calling Imagining Freedom. In all, Mellon says it will grant $125 million to this work. One fundamental question has driven Mellon here. How do we understand our society that is one where we don't other people and forget about them, where we don't dehumanize people and say that They don't deserve some of the same basic human rights, you know, the right to learn, the right to dream, the right to seek knowledge, the right to imagine. That's the president of the Mellon Foundation, poet Elizabeth Alexander. She shares the story of another grantee in Imagining Freedom. We have Dwayne Betts's Freedom Reads. And this project, which was an early one in this initiative and a grant very, very, very dear to my heart. He's a poet. He's a lawyer was incarcerated at the age of 16, was put in solitary confinement. While there, someone slid a book underneath a door, a book of poetry. And that began his journey to imagining possibilities and devoting himself to words. And this grant will put beautifully chosen 500 book libraries in every single prison in this country. Alexander says the arts and culture have what she calls a superpower to convey these stories, to build connections, to create understanding. She hopes that other people, both on the inside and out, will be similarly inspired. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up 54 years after the first moon landing, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the new private space race. It's 849. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt. 
through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. The government has gone after the maker of Fortnite, saying it's been illegally profiting off young players, and that is going to cost the company big money. I think it's a big enough fine that it's going to send shockwaves across the gaming industry and cause other platforms to clean up their practices. How government lawsuits are letting the video game industry know. It's on Watch, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Later this morning at 11, Governor Moore Healy stops by Radio Boston for her first chat with Tiziana Deering since taking office. She'll be talking about the T, the end of pandemic-era assistance programs, and more. That's today on Radio Boston at 11 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Gradual clearing this morning for a mostly sunny, windy afternoon in the upper 50s. Temperatures fall back into the 40s tonight as skies grow overcast again. Clouds stick around tomorrow morning and temperatures rise to the low 60s. There's a chance of afternoon showers. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 851. The White House is pushing for more car charging stations in the U.S. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. What are electric vehicles without stations to charge them? The White House this morning unveiled policies to promote more and more reliable stations across the U.S., particularly on highways. And it says Tesla will for the first time open up part of its charging network to electric vehicles from other car makers. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Tesla has the country's biggest network of electric vehicle charging stations, And according to the White House, the company will open up at least 7,500 chargers to other EV makers by the end of next year. About half of those will be along highway corridors. The Biden administration's goal is to set up 500,000 EV chargers, especially along major highways, so that EVs can make up at least 50 percent of all new car sales by 2030. The Biden administration today also announced that it's come up with new standards for charging stations, which are constructed in part with funds provided by the infrastructure law. The standards include consistent plug types and a consistent method of identification for payment, things today that can vary among providers. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Over the past six months, the price of natural gas has fallen by more than half, That's been a blow to natural gas producers after a very profitable year following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And right now, natural gas producers are particularly exposed to any further slide in prices. Why is that? Here's Marketplace's Lily Jamali. Players in the energy industry are used to prices being volatile. To protect themselves, they hedge. 
Think of hedging like buying insurance against major price swings. But after a blockbuster year, producers are hedging less. According to the consultancy Energy Aspects, only about 36 percent of 2023 natural gas production has been hedged, compared with 52 percent last year. Clark Williams-Derry is with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. I think a lot of gas producers were expecting prices to remain elevated throughout 2023. Uh, but what they've seen is an unexpected price collapse. With less hedging, analysts say natural gas producers are more exposed if prices keep declining. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Consumer spending makes up more than two-thirds of economic activity in the U.S., and we just got word from the Commerce Department that retail sales rebounded big time last month. They were up 3% in January. That's almost twice what economists were expecting. Let's see how markets are taking that. Let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down in the 5 to 6 tenths percent range, with the Dow future down 155 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.751%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. Three private companies are racing to be the first to land a commercial spacecraft on the moon with no passengers or crew. And it'll happen this spring, if all goes according to plan. One of them is already in the air. But private companies arriving on the lunar surface raises questions around the legal framework for private space exploration and use of lunar resources. Tom Standage is author of Which Firm Will Win the New Moon Race, a recent article in The Economist magazine. He joins us now. Hi, Tom. Hello. Good to be here. So who are these companies trying to land on the moon this year and why are they doing it? One of them is a Japanese company called iSpace and its mission called Hakuto-R is actually already on its way. It launched in December, but it's taking a rather roundabout way of getting to the moon, if you can believe it. And then there are two American companies called Intuitive Machines and Astrobotic, and they are both hoping to launch in the next few months. Getting to the moon requires money. What's the market incentive to go there? So the American ones, they are funded under a NASA program called CLPS, which stands for Commercial Lunar Payload Services. So rather than building a whole load of its own probes, its own landers, it is essentially saying we would like to send stuff to the moon. Who would build a lander? And then whoever builds the lander buys a launch service from a company like SpaceX or someone else. There's an open market in that. So essentially, there is this sort of buyer slot on a machine. And so NASA has seeded the market for these two American landers by saying, we will buy this many slots, this much payload mass on your landers. They then put together this whole mission where they build the lander with the money they've taken from NASA, but they also take money from other people who want to send stuff to the moon. And they then put together this mission. So the idea is that we're starting to move to more of a sort of marketplace in lunar landing services. So these companies are basically taking stuff to the moon. That's how they're they're making money or hope to make money. How far away are we, do you think, from extracting economic value from the moon? 
So there's clearly a commercial market in sending stuff into orbit. And that's because there's lots of things you can do in orbit that actually make sense. You can put up satellites to do things like broadcast radio and TV or internet like SpaceX does with, uh, with Starlink. There's useful things you can do in orbit that you can make money from. It's not at all clear what you can make money from by sending stuff to the moon. Because legally, if even if there was like bars of gold lying around on the moon, it's not clear what the legal situation is with bringing resources back or even using resources in situ. So in theory, there could be a commercial market in the future for things like tourism, but we still have this big gray area. There is this thing called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, basically says no country can claim sovereignty over the moon. But what about companies or companies, you know, backed by governments? We don't really know. And so America is trying to sort of update this and has this this new set of the Artemis Accords, which is an attempt to to update things so that you can start to exploit resources. But the trouble is that the Artemis Accords have been rejected by China and Russia. And then there's a rival thing that was set up in the 1980s by a whole load of other countries. But America refused to sign that one. So that's the challenge, that there isn't a sort of prevailing legal theory. Tom Standage is a deputy editor at The Economist and is the author of Which Firm Will Win the Moon Race? Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshour with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Overcast skies gradually clear away this morning. We'll have a mostly sunny afternoon with temperatures in the upper 50s. The clouds return tonight as we fall back into the 40s. Warmer tomorrow in the low 60s, but cloudy with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.